Hi, Patrick. My name is Hannah. I'm calling you from the territories of the Saanich and the Lekwungen-speaking peoples in Victoria, British Columbia. And I, I have two things that I want to say to you. The first, I uh, just want to congratulate you on your book and tell you how much I appreciated it. I asked for it from my mom for my graduation present when I finished my undergrad in the spring and it was really, really affirming to read through that and just feel the feeling of that there's so many people out there that are smart and kind and wonderful and have so many magic powers and are working hard to make the future as okay as it can be. I really like the way that you approach the uh, realities of our time and where, you know, you're not presenting any false hope. Like, if, if people just stop eating meat, meat veggie burgers instead, like, <laughs> we'll be okay. If everyone just gets an electric car, we'll be okay. Like, we're saying, you know, points, tipping points have been passed and the powers that be are not going to give up their power without a fight. They're going to go down kicking and screaming, but, you know, given the fact that shit is going to hit the fan, where do we want to be when that happens, and who do we want to be with, and what do we want to be doing? Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. Finding your podcast and your community has connected me to that, and definitely been a great friend, <laughs> one-way virtual friend. Hey everybody, hope you're all doing well, and thank you Hannah, thank you very very much for that call. You know, I've received some really incredible calls over the past year or so through my Draw Me Line feature. This is definitely one of them. This is actually just the first part of that call. Hannah dropped it through my audio drop feature. I have an option for people to drop audio files directly into a, uh, a folder that I have set up online. People can also call the phone number 208-918-2837. So there's two options there. And I would also like to hear from you, anyone else listening right now, if you have any other thoughts or suggestions about anything that I've produced, any of the episodes I put out, anything like that, please consider calling that phone number or dropping me an audio file directly through the link that I have in the description as well as on my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Yeah, so that was just the first part of the call that Hannah sent me. I will be playing the rest of it at the end of the episode. It is a bit long, but she has a really excellent proposal that she presents in that second part of that call. And I talked to her, actually. I, I gave her a call after she sent me that. We communicated about what she's presenting in it. And uh, I feel very comfortable and excited, actually, to present her proposal uh, on this podcast. So if you want to hear the rest of that, you can just listen to the rest of this episode and you'll get to it eventually, or you can just go down into the description. You'll find two timestamps at the very top of that description. The first for when the introduction ends and the interview begins, and then the second timestamp for when the interview ends and the rest of this call will be played, and then my response to it as well. Hannah, before we jump into this episode, I just want to thank you for your kind words there at the beginning about 
finding the podcast and what it means to you and also getting my book. Uh, Stephen Jenkinson is in the book. He's in the last chapter and it's that transcript is taken from my second interview I did with him about elderhood. And so anyway, uh, thank you very much, Hannah, for the call. Please stick around to the end of the episode to listen to the last half of that, to listen to her proposal. And that's it, everybody. All right. Thank you. Here's the episode. More specifically, they clung to the idea that the only thing that should not be allowed to change was love. Love was the great hallmark card constant. That's the one that people were going to hold up like a banner and march beneath it. It's the true thing. It's the unchangeable thing. It's the eternal thing. And that's bullshit. It's none of those things. It can't be any of those things. Why not? Because your love does not in, exist independently of your loving. That's why. It's not some kind of cosmic gas that you get to watch play out across the sky every time you feel it. Jesus, Murphy, you're the agent of the thing. So if you're in disrepair and finally demise, what do you think becomes of your love actions, your love functions, your love capacities. Don't they wither in some corollary fashion to the same way that your fingernails are withering and your kidneys are withering and the rest? Sure they do. Is that wrong? Far from wrong. It's one of the most faithful renderings of what's happening. It's the way by which you can track where you are in the arc of your days. So welcome, friends, for friends we may soon be, friends they're forged on that dark road, the one that's heading out of town. You know it now, we're headed there, and here we are gathered, you perchance before your old ones and we perhaps before ours. How shall we be then? And what shall we say now that the call and the summons and the plea is gone out? Ah, it is better that we make as though many a thing hangs there in the rafters and hangs in the balance. As if how we are with each other, well, that is how the lords of chance will be with us. As if what we say this very evening brings in the saints, the ancients of days, or brings down the darkness and the rough gods. So welcome to this cosmic constant of ours. All right, everybody. In this episode, I speak with Stephen Jenkinson. Uh, Stephen is an activist, teacher, author, and farmer. He is the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School in Tremore, Canada, and the author of four books, including Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, which is an award-winning book about grief and dying and the great love of life. And he's also the author of Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. In 2015, he created Nights of Grief and Mystery with Canadian singer-songwriter Gregory Hoskins. Uh, with a five-piece band, they have mounted international tours and released three albums, most recently Dark Roads and Rough Gods. 
Now, the beginning of this interview with Stephen, and I've had Stephen on this podcast numerous times. I feel like it's a thing where I want to come back to him occasionally, pick his mind on a few different subjects. And the last time we spoke was over a year ago. A lot has changed in this year or so since we've spoken. I mentioned in the interview as well that I actually met him when he was on tour on the Nights in Grief and Mystery tour. He came through Salt Lake City and I was able to go with a good friend of mine. He signed a copy of of one of his books and um, the performance was truly amazing. It was a really memorable experience for me. I think for pretty much everybody in the audience, everyone was very engaged. It was a very unique experience. And like I mentioned, Stephen seemed to be really in his element up there doing his thing with uh, Gregory and the band. Again, so much has happened since then. I just wanted to catch up with Stephen and talk to him about how he's been dealing with the changing environment, the changing terrain, particularly when it comes to performing live in front of an audience. He, as he mentions in this, they were about to go on a world tour. Of course, they had to cancel that and... You know, there's a certain amount of disappointment and sadness and grief that comes with accepting what's happened over the past year and what will continue to happen in face of this global pandemic and the reaction to it. I have a lot of friends who are musicians, who are performers, whose careers rely upon performing in front of an audience. And, you know, this pandemic has been really devastating for them in a certain kind of way. It's forced them to reevaluate their careers, the direction they want to go in, how they want to continue to do what they love. I felt like talking to Steven, you know, I, I felt like some of the stuff he brought up in my questions for him about that were reflective of other experiences that I've, or other people that I've talked to who've reflected on their experiences in regards to this as well. So there's something I think a lot of people can get out of that, you know, and then another subject that we really move into and something I really wanted to talk to him about is the nature of limitations in this time and love. I was thinking a lot about this. Limitation is what makes us human. Also love is a part of that, of course. Our ability to express love is expressed through the recognition of limitation, of limits. So I wanted to really pick Stephen's mind on this. And it's kind of funny, I only had to ask Stephen a couple questions for him to get going get fired up, so to speak. As he states in this interview, he's rather feisty, which is true. I don't know if that's something that he's just getting more feisty with age, or it was just the day that I called him for this thing or what it was exactly. But yeah, he was on one. But I, I enjoyed the discussion a great deal. And the insights that he brought to the table here are profound and definitely worth listening to and considering as far as how we practice love in our day to day lives. Uh, whether we're doing that through our crafts, the things that we love to create, or uh, in particular with those that we have relationship with, our friends, our family, our lovers. Um, I think Stephen touches on a lot of things that I think many of us will resonate with right now in this time of deepening troubles. Yeah, I was pretty, I felt pretty vulnerable when I was talking to Stephen about some of these things, and he seems to kind of bring that out a little bit in me in particular. So anyway, I I really thank Stephen for his time. And one of the things that we discuss, of course, is his new, as I mentioned at the beginning, reading his bio, or the two albums that he had released with Gregory Hoskins, Dark Roads and Rough Gods. Beautiful work on both their parts. I will be most definitely linking to the Bandcamp page where you can purchase and download those albums 
and also just a link to uh, orphanwisdom.com where you can learn more about Stephen's work and just a link to the page where you can learn more about their music projects. All of that info will be down in the description, of course. And if anybody wants to learn more about my work, of course, there's my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you'd like to support my work monetarily, there are a couple options available for that. You can go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, make a one-time donation there, or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. That's another option for a donation. And if anybody wants to sustain my work on a regular basis, whether you want to do that on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness, and there if you contribute at least a dollar a month or more, you'll gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. You will also gain access to some exclusive content as well. Also, I have set up a Discord server for the patrons of the podcast, which is going pretty well. Got a lot of people on there talking about a lot of different things. It's a really great way for me and for everyone to really get to know each other, engage with each other. And so, yeah, for the patrons of the podcast, you'll gain access to that as well. All right, everyone, thank you so much for your attention up to this point. And without any further delay, here is my interview with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen, it's good to see you. Uh, This is the first time I've done a video interview with you. Um... And I was thinking the last time I actually, I did actually meet you once upon a time before this whole pandemic hit. Um, it was over a year ago. You came through Salt Lake City with uh, oh, yeah. Gregory Hoskins and uh, saw you perform uh, Nights of Grief and Mystery. And it was a uh, really exceptional. I remember we had an interview before that. And so I kind of had some way of, framing or understanding what this performance would be like um but still I, I came in not really sure what i was going to witness or experience and it was a very memorable experience that was that's for damn sure um and it was a packed house i mean you brought everyone in there yeah. i think that that whole auditorium was filled up it was pretty yeah. amazing yeah it was yeah yeah yeah, and you know, I got to see you for a minute after you signed my book, a copy of your book, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I'm just, I just really want to catch up. I mean, it's been over a year; a lot has happened since then. Um, I've just seen that you were about to go on a world tour, and Correct. that got yanked for good for for obvious Pretty reasons. Good. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, so. I mean, how how have you been doing, I guess, uh, regarding that whole project? I mean, you've had to probably reevaluate how you want to uh, produce music and and just, yeah, just do that whole thing. So, I mean, what how have you been doing with all of that? Well, uh, two sets of things um, resulted from it all. One was we had a 70-city tour. Uh, that brought us to Australia and Istanbul and and Stockholm and Jerusalem and all over the States and Canada and so on. And we didn't do one of those shows. Uh, They were supposed to start, I think, in April of last year. Mm -hmm. And we all know what transpired from late January or so on. So that was gone without a trace. But it's slowly, right? I mean, you're defeated by degrees in, in a pandemic. You're not defeated all at once unless... 
you happen to be one of the people who die from it rapidly. Mm-hmm. But uh, otherwise, the vast majority of us are, um, uh, you know, our life withers on the vine by degree. And you don't really know, uh, first of all, how it's going to end up. So you're playing the shorthand, as we did. So it's you use the language of postponement, right? Which is, which is um, defeat plus hope. That's what postponement is. Mm-hmm. And then we we soon discovered that we were being ludicrously optimistic about the possibilities. And eventually, as we came into the summer, and I don't need to replay it for anybody who's listening, but um, so it was immensely disappointing, I have to say, and uh, um, and sad making in the extreme. Uh, as it happens now, we haven't played together for, what, 13 months or 14, something like this. And, you know, it's you begin to wonder if you still have a band. What does it mean to have a band? And, and uh, if you, you can't even rehearse. So, um, yeah. so that's one set of things. It was just, a, just, an, a, just a, uh, an escalating uh, blizzard of disappointment. And uh, the other half of it was... While all this was going on in in January, this is a year ago, just as we speak now, uh, Gregory came down to here, uh, very close to where I'm sitting now in southern Mexico, and and he brought with him a certain amount of recording gear, which, you know, I've come to realize is all you really need these days. You certainly don't need a fully appointed studio and all that sort of thing. So he brought this stuff, and on the off chance that we might come up with something together over the space of I think he was here 16 days or something. Mm -hmm. And I had some ideas bouncing around that were partly uh, literary, I guess, and uh, partly the storytelling variety and, and probably some sense of, of some orchestration in the loosest way possible. And, uh, and so he, he sat downstairs and I sat upstairs and I began to craft some, uh, some script or, or some, mm-hmm. some lyric and so on. And then I brought them down. And during the course of the afternoon into the evening, we began to talk them through and invent them basically. And then within a few days, we put set up all the recording equipment out on a porch at night <laughs> and I stood out there by myself with a pair of headphones on with a click track in the headphones, which is just basically a metronomic uh, orientation, if you so choose, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, about 10 days later, we looked at each other and we said, uh, I think we have a new record here. And we did. And... Uh, in the wake of all the disappointments I just talked about, the record was slowly born over the course of the summer. And we released two records, one live record from the last tour that we did in 2019 that you saw us at. And, and a new, well, they used to call it greatest. Uh, in November, we released those two things. So the amazing thing is, though, I'm continued to be amazed by this. 
that we were in a kind of splendid monastic isolation when we were working on this stuff. We weren't listening to any kind of news. We had no idea about this pandemical, uh, you know, mayhem that was beginning to um, hulk across the world. And uh, when I listened to what we came up with, absent of all that understanding, it's extraordinary and, and it's, no, it's no mark of genius. It's simply a mark of vulnerability that we were in some fashion vulnerable, vulnerable to, the, to the nuance of the times uh, at the same time that people were getting their news from the you know, standard news feed. We were getting it in some other fashion. We crafted a whole uh, montage of visuals for the tour that was already established that I told you about. And we called it the Rough Gods World Tour. Mm-hmm. And the, the visual is, is stark. It's a, it's a map that was crafted by Sir Francis Drake in the late 1500s, a world map. And in the middle of it, we, a friend of mine, a potter down here, had made for me a set of mezcal glasses, little cups, round cups like this, with a skull in the in the bottom of it, so that every time you drink, you don't forget, you know, the whole arrangement. Yeah. And uh, we we took a shot of that, placed it in the middle of the world, and that became the logo for the Rough Gods World Tour 2020. It was extraordinary. And then when we you know came out of the isolation and heard about the pandemic we kind of looked at each other like how did that happen that we had no idea that this was going on and then crafted imagery and text and so on that was an absolutely authentic rendering of what the onset of what's now called a pandemic could look like could do to you and could prompt you towards all basically in one record so, mm. so I think we're, you know, we continue to be on to something and Gregor and I just spoke the other day about, um, you know, we've in a very guarded way, say, if we ever get to boat again, and it's a big if, let's, let's be really frank with each other and say one of the reasons the pandemic became a pandemic is because how easy it was for us to travel internationally. And the chances of that coming back, I think, are very, very remote it's probably going to be linked to your your vaccine status and all kinds of facial recognition stuff is going to be all over the friggin' place and and all this biosecurity is going to be upped and amped and and you know can you tour as you once did. I I doubt it myself. And then are people going to be willing to congregate? Because as we sit here and talk, the principal cause of death, at least in terms of the pandemic, is each other. That's what we die of. We die of each other. And whoever saw that coming, whoever imagined that, aside from, I guess, your Bill Gates or somebody, but, you know, <laughs> most of us never imagined that we would be so conceivably toxic one unto the other that the sheer thought of gathering, as we did briefly here in the field last night, becomes an almost unthinkable thought or something that you that you risk yourself to do, you know, and it begins to feel a bit um, brave new worldish. Yeah. You know, that you, that you have to cultivate a sense of fundamental mistrust 
of how your neighbor lives his or her life because failing to do so might endanger your own sort of thing. And so I've, I characterize it in, in uh, I know I'm making a speech now. I'll stop in a second. That's good. But uh, it was a big question, of course, that you asked, and I've been sitting on it a long time. Sure. But the beautiful thing about making a record is um, uh, you get to do liner notes. There's such a thing. I don't think in another 10 years there'll be such a thing uh, because there'll be no CDs because nobody will play them. But uh, I was able to craft liner notes and in there, one of the little declarations I made is that I said, we are in an occupation undeclared. In other words, I'm imagining that this is very similar to circumstances of military occupation. We're just missing the military, but we have all the sensibility of living under things, curfew and hyper alert alertedness and, and a lot of vigilance that's directed towards us as well as whatever vigilance we engage in and, um, and a lot of other things. So yeah. what a strange time to be a performer whose principal gig is to report as faithfully as one can do on a given night on the current regime and its wrinkles. My, that's what the gig was and remains. And I, and I would guess anything that Knights of Grief and Mystery will be more consequential, more relevant in every sense of the term, if we get out to get to go out again within the next year than it ever was in the good old days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is something I've just been thinking a lot about because I've had my own recent... Um, I've been I've been isolated uh, for the most part for the past year or so, um, and uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, most recently, I did travel a bit, and um, you're talking about this apparatus of of like of a an occupation, this sense that we're being occupied, just lacking the kind of military presence, and um, been trying to kind of navigate the nuances of this pandemic because. I feel like people think about it in a very, I want to say black and white kind of way where they're 100% on board with believing the virus is real and all of the science that goes into that and the recommendations to stay socially distanced and to wear masks and this whole politicized subject. Um, and then there's the other side, which tends to move in the opposite direction, which is more of a conspiracy theory-esque quality to it where it's all this huge conspiracy to enslave humanity and this whole thing and uh, more and more I, I i certainly believe that it's a real thing and that's not the issue at all i think it's worth being concerned about but i'm curious <laughs> i am very concerned about the direction we're seemingly going um with how we're dealing with this whole thing um I just, I'm curious about how you have, I feel like there's this sense of, um, I guess what's coming up for me is a sense of grief. Um, it's like these little deaths that are occurring where our expectations and our hopes are yeah. 
disappearing or, or being crushed one at a time, like you had to probably go through that. And maybe you're still going through that with the love that you've had for performing in front of an audience and with your band and putting on this whole thing. I could tell when I saw you perform with Gregory, like you were, you were in your element and it was really quite a good thing to see. And now you're thinking how long will this last? Will it ever end? Is it at all possible that I could do this ever again? And you never really had the time to say goodbye to that. You know, you didn't ever anticipate this would ever happen. Um, And in your, you know, your long-standing work of, of discussing death and our relationship or lack of relationship with it. Um, I just feel like there's something like a death happening and a grieving process and a denial process. And I've, I've noticed it in myself and I'm, I'm curious how you've been dealing with this as well in your own life. Okay. There's a lot to respond to in there. The first thing is sure. you use the word we uh, to frequently to characterize uh, the reactivity to how things are going. So that's part of the dilemma to continually categorize certain responses as in themselves pandemic, right? That, that somehow most people are fitting into one of those two things, one of those two absolutes, let's say. Sure. Or that we're, we are willing to constantly refer to we when we're talking about the feeling tones and the, the denials and the deaths and, and so on. I'm going to strongly recommend to you that this, um, this generalization instinct, which is probably meant to be inclusive and authoritative to a certain extent, is a, is a bit of a fantasy and not a neutral kind of fantasy either. It's really the way that uh, North Americans in particular go about their globalizing business. Mm. You see? Mm-hmm. It's not helpful to imagine, quote, all of humanity in one sentence or one breath or one thought or one dilemma. Because even, I mean, you, the, the pandemic is global more in its consequence than it is in its infection, infectiousness, right? Mm. That, that's what most of us are responding to. We're not responding to a death in our household, uh, a death next door at the closest it gets it will ever get for most of us is we know somebody who knew somebody who died of the plague that's as close as most of us will get right mm. and yet our lives are completely would appear to be completely mauled by its presence so how to understand this disproportion of between the fatality or the, the fatal aspect of it and the consequential aspect of it my answer is that the um the consequences are a result of us reacting to our reactions that's the principal show here that's what's quote on offer every time you open this god forsaken machine that you and i are talking back and forth upon you're dealing with dealings okay it's not the pandemic directly you can't get anywhere close to it you're dealing with the reactivity, the hyper-reactivity, 
the counter reactivity, the surrogate reactivity, and so on. That's the lion's share. And that's what they call programming, isn't it? Or content, mm. right? So, mm -hmm. all right. So that's the first thing. I don't think it helps to imagine a we that's uh, uniform and being slowly demented by isolation. Okay. That's one. Two, how have I done whatever I've done in the face of it? Well, your characterization, which was very kind about, you know, being on the road and loving the life. And I mean, that's all true. <laughs> the part that you didn't include is that the whole time I was doing the shows, I was doing them in the presence of the inevitable end of being able to do the shows, not hypothetically. Uh, as a 66-year-old guy, not hypothetically. And it had nothing to do with any acknowledgement of a possible pandemic or anything of the kind. It had to do with the fact that my little arrangement with life is a temporary one. And that's what inhabits the show. It's that sense. That's the sensibility that informs the sense of wonder and, uh, and the sense of joy that's in it and the sense of um, uh, being completely perplexed by, by apparent random uh, events and, uh, and the grief and the mystery in the title. That's all informed by the understanding that you don't get to do this for very long or for very often. Now, where you go. That's basically how it works. And, you know, just as an inside story, I don't know why I'm, this occurs to me to be a good thing to mention to you because it's a private thing in a way, but what the hell, what's private anymore? I mean, it was not infrequent that every night you know, after the sound check. And if there's a green room, God help us, often there wasn't. We had to dress in a hallway or whatever it was. But let's imagine that there was a room and eventually we'd gather in the room like uh, maybe 20 minutes before showtime. And we run down the business of the set list and, you know, be clear about any alterations we'd made and, and, um, and joke often and uh, be nervous together, right? And have a certain amount of dread about whether there was going to be a live audience <laughs> or whether it was going to be a, an inert audience. And those things can happen, of course. And somewhere in there, very frequently, mostly it fell to me to do it, there'd be a tone of gratitude, of thanks, an acknowledgement, for example, that if any of us had artist or performer or musician friends we knew that most of them were not working that night. We're not getting paid that night. We're not getting some acknowledgement for what they'd lent their life to and all of their discipline and their skillfulness and their genius and so on and so on. And, and you know, we knew that we were in a very, very small percentage of people who are claimed by a sense of purpose in their lives and then actually get to act on it. And then wonder of wonders get paid to do it. And will wonders never cease that fellow human beings will pay in turn to come into a, a room and be willing to be present for you doing so. So what does that generate? It generates two things at the same time. One, 
this can't possibly last. I mean, nobody's the Rolling Stones. Jesus, even the Rolling Stones aren't the Rolling Stones for crying out loud. And uh, the second thing is gratitude. You know, I kind of, and that's the mystery grief complex in a phrase. It can't last. You've lived long enough to realize it can't last. You're giddy with the fact that you get to do it now. Add all that up together and what do you have? You have some kind of uh, unsummoned mixture of immense gratitude for being alive and being in this little sort of motorcycle gang that you've put gathered around you that, that is working to deliver the best possible version of what you've come up with lyrically. And, uh, and you just look at them as I did many times and just thank them for their, their extraordinary, you know, service and willingness to, to not be the center of it all, but to lend their, great skillfulness to something larger than themselves. Hmm. That's what I did. And I did it all the time. And sometimes it brought more than me, but certainly me uh, to tears before we went out. Imagine, I mean, it's, that's a hell of a condition to go out on a stage in, you know, not, not hyperactive calisthenics before you go out, not high-fiving or, or drinking or smoking or no, it was that kind of emotional, uh, intensity before you did anything. Mm. And, uh, and that I think that tuned us to the presence of fellow human beings, many of whom came to something. They didn't know what it was going to be. They were very, vaguely compelled by the title, but also in some fashion concerned about the title because it didn't seem to promise a night of glee and uh, distraction. And of course, as you saw, that's not what it was. No. And it confounded the, the normal etiquette of applause at the end of a, like, what's a number? Is it over? How can you tell what, what's your part to play as an audience? And finally, people began to realize they're not really an audience, mm. but they are our fellow witnesses to how confounding it is to try to be a, a human being. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. It was a kind of communion. So, yeah. Is that? Are you kidding? I mean, it's, you know, one of the high water marks of life and, and your normal days can't possibly compare favorably to being able to get out to do that, such a thing. Yeah. So, so you make a record and I have a couple of writing projects on the go now. And to do something like that, you have to invent the idea of an audience or co-conspirators or whatever. That's really what you have to do. You have to imagine that they're out there. You have to have some sense of what they're going through, uh, some sense of the purpose of being in touch with them, and then some sense of the consequence that you might mostly accidentally have. You know, last point on the, on the question you've asked. Yesterday morning about this time, I was on a call with a woman from Singapore, and uh, she was interviewing me because she's the translator into Turkish of a book I wrote called Diewise. And so they're putting together a kind of publicity campaign for the launch of the book, which I think is coming out next week. And she asked, the last question she asked me, I didn't hear it coming at all. She, I've heard virtually every question I've ever been asked many times over, but never this one. She said, so we've, we've translated Diewise from, from Canadian 
into Turkish. I said, yes, that's right. <laughs> and she said, um, here's the thing that really confounds me. Why, why do you suppose that people from non-English speaking countries come to what you do or are drawn to what you do, or hopefully will, will look at this book? Why does that happen? And I don't think I'd ever really thought the thought before. Being a Canadian, I'm, I'm not that keen on imagining myself as being the center of any particular kind of attention. So I had to agree to see myself that way to be able to imagine an answer to the question. Mm. And what I came up with, I think, is who among us is not at least secretly hoping that some real-time incarnation of the real thing in human form will appear in our lives long enough to do two things. Give us a sense of real um, dissatisfaction with what we've been doing, not with other people, but with what we've done with this allotment that's been entrusted to us. And another the other, the corollary feeling would be, you know, more is possible than we have allowed ourselves to think or to imagine or to ask of ourselves. And I think the real thing in human form does that to you. It certainly has done it to me. I'm, I'm, I continue to operate based on being radiated by the example of a totally incarnated, adamant human being in the form of a storyteller that I apprenticed with years and years ago. It's still there. It's there like a, like a kind of titanium battery pack or something. It never gives out. And so the least you can do, if you're, if you're granted that and blessed by it and harassed by it, uh, all of which is true, then you try inadvertently by living up to the example that you saw to in some accidental or at least unintended way become some example, right? And that's how things get passed along. You know, it's, it doesn't come from me. It comes through me and I'm lucky enough to be a serviceable conduit to the whole operation. And it's not that I haven't worked on how to do so. I have. It's not that I don't have my skills such as they are. I do. But all in all, it's not self-initiated. All in all, I'm on the receiving end of whatever people feel that they're receiving from me. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty good deal when it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing with my vast disappointments about my version of the isolation that you described that you've been living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about love um, in the context of limits. I, I was just thinking about you when you would do your performances and put everything out there, you were seemingly acutely aware that this probably won't ever last just like anything. Um, and that's the kind of love, right? There's a, there's a certain love in that. You bet. 
I, I just, I, I've been thinking about just, of course, your work surrounding, uh, you know, you worked in the death trade, as you've called it. Um, and the value or, or just the, um, the recognition of limits. And I don't know, I've been thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot, I guess, because I'm, I'm having this personal experience with love and the acknowledgement of limitations due to the pandemic in great part. Um, and I, I just think, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to even think of how to frame this question for you. And I apologize. It's just, it's just a feeling of, there's just this acknowledgement that I have to just, it's like I'm being humbled before this thing that I am completely without, I, I am I have no control over this situation. I don't know how to proceed with it, but I feel something like really profound and powerful happening too that I would like to pursue, but I can't. And um, and I just been thinking about how love is. It's like you were describing like coming out on stage, and you know that like this. There's this sort of bittersweetness that comes with this experience of this is a very limited experience that I'm going to have. And I have to really feel it as presently as possible, um, yeah. knowing that it will end at some point. And that's just like life. Yeah. That's the whole experience of your life is that way too. And yes. I feel like love is that way too. Like something about the acknowledgement that the people you love will die and that you too will die and that your death will affect those that you love will, that, that all is, is mixed in with the whole experience. And I think the pandemic in particular has highlighted these things for me. And I just wanted to talk to you about, about love. <laughs> um, and I don't know, how, how has this, uh, maybe uh, your experiences as of late, has it at all affected or impacted the way that you've experienced love or you share your love with others? Um, yeah, that, that's really my question, I guess. Okay, well, it's of course it's a personal question, but uh, sure, virtually every question I've been asked the last fifteen years is a personal question, although it's rarely about me. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's about what I care about, and that's more personal than asking me about me. So, well, you've you've touched on a subject that's very current because uh, the book I'm working on is a book about matrimony, mm. and so love, as you might imagine figures in the in the proceedings here's what i learned such as it is about love when i was in the death trade i mean first of all i didn't meet people at when they were at their best obviously not i didn't meet people when they're at their most illusioned either i met them when they're trying to figure out how to be disillusioned because that's what a terminal diagnosis will do, possibly. It'll disillusion you. And if you think about what the word actually means, you should be looking for disillusionment most of your waking hours. Right? To be freed of the illusion that will never come to pass kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's what finding out that you're dying can be. It could be the end of your bullshit, the end of your 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 make work project, you know, the mm -hmm. end of killing time, 
the end of so many things. Uh, and it and it and if you're lucky and you do your work, it ends just about everything you thought was true. Man, what's left? Well, there's the big question. And the answer is this time that's left to you is for something. It's not just the kind of withering denouement. It's for something. It's a particular kind of time. Hmm. You've had other particular kinds of time, like adolescence, like falling in love, like uh, contending with the travails of employment, and you know many others if you got to build a house, whatever it was. So this is a, a particular time with a particular time signature that's attached to it. You best learn how to sing. Okay. So what I saw, though, didn't often go that way. What I saw was people clinging for dear life to that which was already effectively in the past tense. Hmm. And it's a very sad apparition when you see fellow human beings who can't be persuaded to let go of what's already gone. It sounds counterintuitive to put it that way, but I think you, you have a feel for what I'm saying. Yeah. And so how does love come into this then? What, where does love end up? How does it end up? And so on. Well, generally what people did was cling to the loved one and therefore to love, whether they be the dying person or a family member or whatever it was. More specifically, they clung to the idea that the only thing that should not be allowed to change was love. Love was the great hallmark card constant. That's the one that people were going to hold up like a banner and march beneath it. It's the true thing. It's the unchangeable thing. It's the eternal thing. And that's bullshit. It's none of those things. It can't be any of those things. Why not? Because your love does not in exist independently of your loving. That's why. It's not some kind of cosmic gas that you get to watch play out across the sky every time you feel it. Jesus, Murphy, you're the agent of the thing. So if you're in disrepair and finally demise, what do you think becomes of your love actions, your love functions, your love capacities? Don't they wither in some corollary fashion to the same way that your fingernails are withering and your kidneys are withering and the rest? Sure they do. Is that wrong? Far from wrong. It's one of the most faithful renderings of what's happening. It's the way by which you can track where you are in the arc of your days, that you're willing to even have your understanding of love become a servant to what dying is asking of you. Because that's what it's doing. It's asking you to rejig your understanding of love to now include the endings that it's a witness to. Instead of being a defense against those endings, it becomes one of the ending things. And if you can love that too, you're finally loving like a grown-up. Now there's the gauntlet and I'm throwing it down and I'm saying it. And I'm not saying this because I'm a hard ass, you know, with no particular feelings. And so it's easy to say, I'm saying it 
because I saw the consequences of not doing it over and over and over again. And, and to be a witness to human beings doing that to themselves and to each other, and they can't be persuaded to change their mind, can break your heart and lead you into some fairly dark places. That's very possible. So all of this is to say then <coughs> that one of the fundamental acts of love as a grown-up is being willing, as you said in your question, to be a faithful witness to the time-limited aspect of what you are prepared to love and or whom and of your loving to. That as long as your loving is of this world, and it certainly is, then your loving will obey the natural order of things. And that's a kind of loving gesture too, that you don't try to lift your love above the fray, above the, the, um, the slings and arrows that prevail, no? Okay, so now let's bring all of this malarkey to the present circumstances. And here we have to generalize a little bit, even though I chastised you for generalizing at the beginning. I'm going to join you now a little bit, just for the sake of trying to say something about it that could be useful to uh, whoever might be listening. Okay. So we have this circumstance where people, as we know, are dying in the most fundamental kind of aloneness that it's possible to imagine. They are uh, ensconced in a high-tech hive. They're plugged, they're plumbed, they're traked. They're being, you know, not very gently massaged and all the rest. Mm -hmm. um, incommunicado, basically, either because they're being traked and can't talk or because nobody's allowed in, or because uh, certainly in the, in the part of the world that I live in, uh, you have something like two people designated as the representatives of earth, of all of humanity. And they're the ones that get to visit and nobody else does. And there's no interchangeable aspect to that. It's those two people come what may who get to visit the person in their dying time. One at a time, I suppose, under heavy security and, and all the rest. So is there anything, quote, natural about the circumstance? Of course not. But wait a second. How natural was it before the pandemic? You see, this is one of the things that's happening, is that people's memory of the pre-pandemic time has taken on a kind of rosy, golden glow. Freedom, unrestrained you know, easy mixing with others. And if you just go down the list of how you think it was, you'll stop after about the third one. You'll say, well, actually it wasn't, it wasn't quite, at least I didn't live like that. No, you certainly didn't live like that. So, you know, your pre-pandemic life has now become an object of your fantasy, not your memory. Mm. What did we do with the time wherein we were unconstrained in our ability to visit people who are dying in the hospital. What did we do? Okay, so that's a good question to wonder about. And how did we die when there was no constraints of tricks and all the things I just articulated a minute ago? Hmm. 
and when people could come and see you and and how was it was it really the the time of truth telling and absolute heart-to-heart encounter the likes of which uh, a normal life can barely tolerate and bear was that what it was when we were able to do that you know the answer to this and i know the answer to it too and when i was in the death trade i saw what people did with the freedom and the unconstrainedness and the lack of social isolation so i'm going to go out on a high wire and say don't friggin tell me that it's worse now than it was then Okay, so that's a very feisty thing to say, I know. And I'm not ignoring some of the -the on-the-ground realities of things that have changed. Like you having to sit in that room for interminable hours and all the rest. But you asked me about love. You didn't ask me about getting through. Okay? So what is love then, given all of this? I'm acting out of it in speaking to you about what I'm saying right now. In other words, the claim I'm making is love is love when it's not willing to blink, when it's willing to fess up and to confess and to recognize the gross self-imposed limitations that accompanied the typical Western person's typical life back in the day. See? Mm. So here's the throwdown. You want to get back to normal? That should be the last thing you want. You want to be able to love like you used to be able to love? Are you sure? Or would you like to be able to love now in a way that never occurred to you before these troubles, before this pandemic, before this isolation and loneliness and sense of ongoing despair and dread and all the rest? If your love doesn't bear the fingerprints of what you've lived and haven't lived over the last year, it's probably not love. It's probably another form of cheerleading, an idea that you can catch a break by forming some kind of virtual relationship with another human being that as soon as they ring the all clear signal, you'll run into each other's arms and live as if you've never lived before. See, it's heavy stuff, no? Yeah. But you're asking me, okay? So this is the guy. Uh, this is all I got is what I saw and my attempt to translate it, mm-hmm. right? And then, frankly, hold myself and everybody who's willing to think about it to a different standard than just getting by. Because surely, I mean, <laughs> obviously I'm on a rant now. But I'll finish this part with this thing. Maybe you woke up this morning doing what I'm about to describe. Maybe not. Your eyes open involuntarily. You don't really open your eyes. They just kind of open. And depending on what you did the night before, things come into view and into focus and so on. And generally speaking, stuffs where you left it when you closed your eyes, including you. There you are, your eyes having opened again, and for no apparent reason, with no apparent uh, reward coming to you directly or acknowledgement of anything that you did in particular, 
you are alive. And within 10 seconds, you can quickly do the math and realize that fellow human beings in the same city that you live in are not. Either because of the pandemic or the other reasons that people die. But they did die and you didn't. And so here's the question. It's not exactly why not. It's what for. You're alive are you proceeding accordingly? Are you informed by the understanding that this aliveness that's entrusted to you is a time-limited thing, just the same way that being able to perform in Salt Lake City on a given night is a time-limited thing? What do you do with the limit? Do you complain about it? Do you bitch about it? Do you kick at it with your feet? Or do you live as if it's one of the things that's granted to you. You get to do it, and then you get to have to stop doing it. How does love figure into that? The answer I think is obvious, that you perform as if you're not going to be performing sometime, and you'll never see these people again, and this night will never be replicated. And how do you do that night after night after night? Well, that's what being a performer is. It's not a fakery, but it's a willingness to have this thing reborn and reborn and reborn again until the tour is over. And here's the PS. The tour is over and you either with either sorrow or with relief bid farewell to your fellow band members in the airport. And all of a sudden you're on your own and some flight to somewhere that connects to somewhere that connects to getting picked up and finally been driven home and you parachute back into a place completely uninformed by the parade of humanity that you were lucky enough to be part of and to see. And how are you going to translate all of your gratitude and everything you saw into living a normal, unspectacular, non-performing life, which is where your ability to perform secretly comes from there's the assignment and that's what love looks like this morning to me <laughs> okay i think what uh, the challenges i've had personally with with love and you're describing love as an action and i think what i've so often um I've observed and I felt is that love should be this like eternal thing that lives beyond the human flesh, the human, the human experience or something like it's this thing. And I don't know if that's my religion that I grew up with. I don't know if that's being a, a citizen of this particular culture at this time. Here's where I get to ask you a question. Yeah, then. Please do. Where do you, where do you suppose that should comes from? Um, I almost want to say, like, it's a, is it a Christianity thing? Is it a, uh, is it, I think about your work and describing us as being like a, you know, as being like orphans on this land. And there's something almost, there's a weird comfort at first in believing that. And then you realize how full of shit that yeah. really is. And it's impossible to live up to. So it's actually disappointing. But 
it's 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 not, it's really not those things. It's just not so. It's just not so. Yeah. It's not full of. It's not that it's full of shit. It's not that it's impossible to live up to. It's just not so. It's the same thing as saying, you know, I think I should be able to fly. Life sucks. But it's just ludicrous, right? You're not supposed to be able to fly. <laughs> what are you supposed to be able to do? Okay, so if you just change the emphasis of the observation, it's, by the way, it's not just a Christian thing, and I know I've interrupted you, and it's, okay. it's your show, and it's bad manners, and, but no. we're almost out of time here. So we're racing to the finish line here, and the ending is in view again. <laughs> so it's not just a Christian thing. It's very easy to take down the Christians right now, right? Either historically or the far right or in your country, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Truth of the matter is they didn't invent a lot, okay? They fine-tuned a few things. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them not. That's true, okay? But they didn't invent the idea that love should last forever, mm. okay? Love has no obligation to you to last forever, Love has no obligation to you at all. You, on the other hand, might have an obligation to love, you see? As long as you remember what the word obligation means. It doesn't mean a friggin' burdensome weight that you have to drag around like a 10-ton stone. The word obligation etymologically means this. That little L-I-G root to it, it's the same root as ligament, religion, to take two big ones. It means the act of bringing into alignment disparate things that can, for the, the duration of that alignment, perform or achieve something they never, never could have done had they not been brought into alignment. Mm -hmm. And religion simply means to do that again because the original alignment was somehow broken or ruptured and it's being redone. That's what the word means. Okay. So you're lucky to have obligation. Hmm. And so if you understand yourself as having an obligation to love, we know that in English that has two meanings. One is you have an obligation, which you must render to what love is. You have an, also an obligation to love, to participate, participate in the act and the, or the repertoire of love, which is not a constant thing that has to be reinvented, reconsidered, uh, rendered down according to the dilemmas of the times, the prejudices of the times, uh, the achievements of the times and so on. And our time now, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm, I haven't even read the book love in a time of cholera, but it's obviously, uh, handy at least as a as a reference to the time we're in now what does it do well it asks more of you not less and it doesn't comfort you but it invites you <coughs> to live for the moment a comfort-free life mm -hmm. when you consider what seeking out comfort has done for you and to you in the past it's not a bad thing to decide that being comforted is basically for rookies Okay. And comforting is very close to that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there was a line in the last, but it's bad manners to quote yourself, but nobody else wrote it. So I have to quote it. And the gist of it was, 
I think the, the title of the, the chapter was, this is an important safety announcement. And the safety announcement is that there is no safety. Okay, that's the thing to know. And it's never been truer than it is now. There is no safety. Okay, so how do you proceed with no safety to guide you? Well, the, the answer is, but wait, but you're not supposed to last. Now, this is not a suicide mission I'm describing. It's simply an acknowledgement that you can, you can deliver your life's reasons with the understanding that you don't get that many chances to do it. Okay? So with this comes a sense of urgency, absolutely, and a sense of humility, too. Why? Well, your shit's not eternal. That's why. And if it's not eternal, it's, it's, you're born into a troubled time. This is your stage. Okay, it's not the right word. This is your staging area. This is where you get to do your thing, baby. Okay, so what are you waiting for? You're waiting for a better time? You ain't going to get a better time. You're waiting for a COVID-free time? I'm not sure there'll be such a time in the foreseeable future. This shit might be around us for a good long while. Mm -hmm. And if it's not this, as they're saying, get ready for the next one and so on and so on. Okay. So, so you translate that all of that into a kind of advocacy, let's call it, for the limitations. Last thing I'd say about it, and we gotta we gotta sign off here because like you, I got shit I have to do right after this. Okay. So here's a guy, he's written a book about the near future of humanity. And in the book, he says, they're working on a serum, they're working on a pill, and pretty soon you won't have to die. Won't that be something? And of course, everybody apparently very excited at this prospect of living forever. I don't know why living a, a relatively short period of time hasn't been fabulous for a lot of us. The idea of more of it doesn't automatically produce euphoria, I wouldn't think. But, I mean, who thinks about this? You just want more if you get a chance. So as long as you're rich, you can sign up for the thing and you won't have to die. And then the, then the next question is, so the people who won't have to die actually won't be able to die. That's the truth of it, right? It's probably, that shit's probably irreversible. Don't ask me how it works, but I'm figuring that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. Wow. What should we call them? What do you mean? I mean... Are they human? If they can't die, are they human? If they're not beset by the same set of considerations, which are a faithful reflection of our mortality and our frailty, who are they? Who are they to us? Who are they to each other? Are they the elect now? Who are they? I would go out on a limb and say, you're going to have to find a new word for them because you won't be able to call them human. And here's why. Because our understanding of humanity on our best days is informed by the fact that, that it is in the manner of humanity to end and to know that the ending is there mm -hmm. and to therefore have some choice about what the meaning of that ending shall be ongoingly. There. The meaning of your life is not in your hands. 
the meaning of your life, you entrust to the people who live longer or beyond you. And then they have to do that. And then they have to do that and so on. And let's imagine that that's what we're doing right now by talking about this thing. And let's imagine we've already lost listeners who were hoping to tune into something that gets them out of the funk of being in a pandemic and all the rest. And Jesus Christ, here's the guy talking about the fact that love ends and it's got to end and that's what makes you human. Isn't that great? Well, actually, it is great. That's what I'm saying. It's a, it's a secret that's, that's openly available. Mm-hmm. That the deal, okay, the actual architecture of life is the promise you're looking for. It's the promise kept that you yourself have a hard time keeping. It won't blink on you. See, it won't secretly make you live longer, make you struggle more. It will give you every opportunity to understand that if you only get this to do get to do this for a short period of time, you might be able to do it. It's the prospect that it'll never end. It could drive you right around the bend, you see? Hmm. There's a lot of mercy in the limits and the frailties that are entrusted to us. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I know you have to get going, uh, but there's so much I wanted to respond to uh, where the uh, the roots of this eternal love syndrome thing that I have or others may have. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't know what else to add to that right now. I, I just, uh, I feel the limitation of this time that we have together, Stephen, so... I'm just going to leave it. We can maybe continue this conversation at another time. And um, I just have to say, I've been listening to, I think it was either Dark Roads or it might have been Rough Gods last night. It was the more, it wasn't the live performance. It was the, uh, what sounded like a studio. That's Rough Gods. Rough Gods, yeah. Beautiful work. Thank you. And again, it's really good to see you again. I'm glad that you seem to be healthy and well, all things considered. Um. And that's all I got for you. Thank you so much for joining me, Stephen. I really appreciate the time. Thank you for the invitation, man. Take care of yourself now. I will. Beneath the truth lies the bones. The truth more complete I'll bet everything I own is a truth that's bitter sweet beneath the waves of pleasure Bitter sweet. Mm-hmm.
I've had a dream called the friend farm that you can probably guess what it is and I'm sure that many 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 of your listeners have had this dream too and really it seems like for me it's the only feasible option really if I can't trust the systems that I'm living inside then I need to just work on a pants <laughs> emancipating myself from them and emancipating the people around me and becoming more uh, autonomous and resilient and be just create the future that we can handle for ourselves and cooperate with others that are doing the same. Uh, so this is something that my dad recently has told me that he's ready to collaborate with me on it and so I'm really excited. My dad, his partner, and then one of my best friends and I are kind of spearheading it and trying to make it happen as soon as possible and then I've got plenty of other friends that are you know just just following along and probably gonna join in when the time is right for them. So a couple of weeks ago we did an exercise where all four of us independently wrote up our own version of our mission statement and then we kind of amalgamated them and there was already a lot of overlap but we created this one that we could all share and stand behind. So here it is. The Friend Farm Mission Statement, January 2021. Our aim is to create a cooperative farming and co-housing project where we foster right relations with the land and the first people of the land. We cooperate to meet our basic needs and therefore free up time and energy for creating the world we want to live in. We use a diverse and creative blend of agroecological techniques to bolster long-term local food security. Where one's access to physically, mentally, and spiritually healthy food and lifestyle choices are not dependent on their race, wealth, or ability. Where we steward healthy animals, land, air, water, and relationships. Where we serve as a community hub for education, creativity, and local organizing. Where we live, work, teach, and thrive in the commons we cultivate and caretake together where we foster a vibrant, multi-generational community that takes excellent care of our old and our young, where people can heal as much and as often as they need to, where people give what they can and take what they need, and where we create a system that is abundant, adaptable, and resilient, where we and future generations will be able to take care of each other and live good lives no matter what challenges the future brings. This mission statement is subject to evolution and refinement as our work progresses. Um, so if that sounds like something that you, anyone who's listening, uh, would like to be connected to, then please reach out to me. We're, we're open right now, um, to looking at different places, but we're, we're definitely more so looking at the Kootenays and the Peace valley in northern bc um yeah so there's there's lots of opportunity potential different ways to be involved it's still emerging so 
I can't say exactly what the relationship would look like because we would co-create that, but at this point, certainly investors with money would be great, but that's absolutely not the only way to be involved. Um, thank you for hearing me out. If you want more information, I can get that to you. There's a, there's a recorded meeting where everybody who's involved right now, like about 12 or so of us, just kind of let you know like what, what we're, what our deal is, what our contributions are, what our vision is. Um, so people can find that or just talk to me about it. And I think that's it. So my name is Hannah and you can either email me at dwyer96 at gmail.com d-w-y-e-r-9-6 at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram Hannah R. Dwyer and it's Hannah with an H and Dwyer as I just spelt it. Thank you so much. I hope everybody's staying safe out there and taking care of themselves and happy almost springtime. Hannah, thank you so much for that message. Thank you for sending that my way. This friend farm idea sounds amazing. I spoke with Hannah after she sent this my way. We had a, a good phone conversation about this idea. I vouch for it. Uh, sounds like a really great thing. It's something that I think a lot of people are certainly thinking about doing right now if they're capable and able to do it. So I'm more than happy to promote this idea, to put it on this podcast episode. You can find her again on Instagram or her email. That's probably the best way to contact her. And actually what I realized as well is that when I was uh, looking at her Instagram profile, she had a link to a Gods and Radicals article that she had published. The title of that is Magic Can Create a Decolonial Future. I will be putting a link to that article in the description as well. I think it's worth reading. It's a very beautiful piece that she put together. Uh, so yeah, I, I just think that people doing this type of thing right now is really important. Even if I am not doing it or I'm incapable of doing it, I recognize the value of people like Hannah uh, who have the ability to do this, to imagine and put into practice, you know, some kind of community, uh, something that can connect us more to the land, to each other, uh, creating alternative forms of of existence in this time and building resiliency. So please, if you're at all interested in that and want to learn more about it, of course, give her, uh, send her a message through email or on Instagram. And again, I'll have those uh, resources, those links in the description. And I just want to address uh, what she said there at the beginning as well, where she was very, uh, Hannah, you were very kind and uh, just talked about my book, which I'm very proud of, and I'm very happy that I was able to put it together and get that published through Gods and Radicals Press last year. It's kind of amazing that I have a published book. It has some pretty incredible people in it, including an interview I did with Stephen Jenkinson, of course, featured in this episode. It was my most recent interview with him, but I had a uh, interview I did oh, about, what, two years ago or something like that, over a year ago with him, regarding his book, Come of Age, which discusses elderhood. I was really proud that I was able to have that interview included in that collection. So if anybody wants to learn about that book in particular, of course, there's my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. You'll find a link there to it. You can also find it, of course, 
at the Gods and Radicals Press website, which is abeautifulresistance.org. You can click on the Books tab, and you'll find a link to that there, and you can purchase a copy if you so choose. And yeah, I just really am happy that I could connect with Hannah. Uh, I really love the fact that this podcast has allowed me to meet such incredible human beings who are doing uh, really beautiful, sacred work right now uh, in this time. And again, I just I, I feel good knowing that people like Hannah are out there putting their their hearts and their minds into these types of uh, projects to put into practice what many of us know to be true which is that we are facing decline, collapse. Things are changing very rapidly ecologically and climatologically. Uh, we're undergoing massive shifts. Whether we want them to happen or not, it is happening. And so getting in the right mindset and putting our creative uh, abilities and energies into these types of things is really needed right now. Yeah, please consider looking into what Hannah is doing. And if you could lend any support for that friend farm that she's working on, uh, please contact her. And also, of course, people can contact me if you have any questions about that as well. I can definitely redirect those thoughts or questions or concerns to her. Of course, you can find a way to contact me through my website. That's a really easy way to get in contact with me as well. And so anyway, everyone, thank you so much for your attention, for listening to this interview with Stephen, for listening to this message from Hannah, and thank you all so much for your support and all the ways that you show it. All right, everyone, have a great week. I will be back soon with more episodes, with more interviews. Have a good one.